to have an entrepreneurial idea to actually change an industry. It's not that you don't go and speak to people in that industry and try and learn from them in some way, but understand that they may not actually see your vision. As Steve Jobs used to say, you don't ask the consumer what they need, you tell them what they need. Hey there, and welcome to Up Next in Commerce, your number one podcast for e-commerce insights from some of the biggest names and fastest growing startups in the industry. I'm Stephanie Postles, your host and CEO of Mission.org. The term disruptor gets thrown around a lot these days. But if there is one person who truly earned the title of disruptor, it's Kara Golden, the founder of Hint Water. She fought against an archaic beverage industry to bring her revolutionary product to market. And along the way, she had a transformative encounter with Jeff Bezos and negotiated getting her product into Whole Foods the same day she gave birth to her son. You want the full story? Then you'll definitely want to stick around for this whole episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Kara, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. Thanks for hopping on and joining me. So thrilled to be on. You know, I knew you got started in the Bay Area, and, and we got to talk a little bit about Austin. So very thrilled to connect with you. Yeah, maybe eventually you'll end up here like everyone else. I don't know. Maybe. You never know. It's a good spot to be. Good Mexican food for sure. Yeah. So you just mentioned before we started recording about being in Google offices. And I actually think this is a really fun place to start because, you know, I worked at Google for quite a few years in the Bay Area before I started Mission. And I was just talking uh, to our producer, Hillary, that, you know, I feel like Hint to me was a household name. I mean, especially in the Bay Area going into Google offices, they lined all the micro kitchens there. I mean, they're on every single shelf. It's just like what you had every day. But for people, you know, who maybe look at you and see that success story, which is what I would have seen back then, I wanted to start in a different place around a certain executive you were meeting with early days of the company and him calling you sweetie, which I'm sure you loved. And I kind of wanted to start there instead of, uh, you know, what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll set this up a little bit of some background on that story in particular. So that chapter in my life came at a time when I guess it was probably just over a year into launching our product on the shelf in the some Bay Area stores that we were getting a lot of pressure from some of the stores that we were already in to increase our shelf life. So for those of you who aren't that familiar with this or have never really thought about this, so products that you buy in stores have expiration dates, right? And so if you're a beverage, 
And if you are a shelf-stable product, meaning that you don't have to be refrigerated, the requirements in a lot of stores are that you have to have at least a few months. Um, In our case, we were hearing six months. And so we had gotten the product on the shelf at Whole Foods, but I felt like right when I felt success and that I felt like we were kind of in the game and everything was going great, the bar was getting higher. And so they were saying, okay, four months, you hit three months, now it's four months, now it's five months. And I'm like, oh, come on, coach. I mean, what, what are we doing here? I've already achieved that. And the only way that we could really figure out how to get a longer shelf life was to add preservatives. Nobody was doing a product that was using real fruit and not using some kind of preservative in it. And when we asked the industry, again, I didn't come from the industry, I came from tech, the response that I was getting back from people, including the people who were developing our product, was it's impossible. And what I learned in tech, kind of growing up in tech, as I like to say, is that when you're creating something in tech, it's all about it's not available to do now. I would rarely hear the term, that's impossible. Instead, it's not possible today. But people would actually be very careful about saying that it's not possible. It just hasn't been done. It was much more common than it's impossible. And so I think having that mindset, even though I was hearing that what you're asking to do, create a natural product without preservatives is impossible, was something I kept searching for the answers. I was sharing with a girlfriend of mine because I really felt like I was going to get kicked out of some of the stores that we were in. I was sharing with my story with her that I was really nervous about getting booted out of some of the distribution that we had created already. And she mentioned to me that she had met this guy on the airplane. She didn't know him well, but he worked at Coca-Cola And he was, uh, you know, very senior, experienced guy. And she said, I wonder if I could reach out to him and he would talk to you. I mean, maybe he can give you some other advice of where to go. And I also was looking for distribution because I was so far loading up my car with my Grand Cherokee with cases of hints. And I thought, you know, it'd be really nice to get some of those big trucks to take it around the country and be able to sell it in other states. So when she asked this gentleman to do a phone call with us, I remember being really nervous because I thought he's very senior. He's, you know, super experienced. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have all these crazy questions. I was very prepared for the phone call. About 15 minutes into the conversation, that's when I was describing how well we were doing, how I had left my addiction to Diet Coke um, and moved into drinking plain water and decided that water was boring. And that's how I decided to create this product hint. And there was definitely this need. We were doing well in stores, but we were trying to figure out the production side of getting a longer shelf life combined with, I'd love to talk to them about potentially distributing the product. And that's when he jumped in and said, sweetie, Americans love sweet. Your product isn't going anywhere. And I thought, Oh my God, did he just call me sweetie across the phone? As my dad said to me when I shared that story with him, he said, thank goodness you weren't actually sitting in his office live. I mean, that probably wouldn't have been such a great 
situation for anybody. Things would have gone down. Things would have gone down, right? And, you know, it's funny because I've had people over the years when I've shared that story, I've had people say to me, did you correct him? Did you say to him, wait, you're calling me sweetie? I mean, why didn't you hang up on him? I mean, all these things were going through my head. And instead, I decided just to listen and hear what he was saying. And so many of the things that he started saying that he believed was counter to what I was seeing in my consumers who were buying our product. So he was saying to me that the goal was not to create an unsweetened flavored product. The goal for consumers was to get less calories. And I thought, but what if getting healthy isn't necessarily about less calories? Maybe we've been told that getting healthy is about zero calories. At the time, we were at 10 calories. The industry hadn't really perfected zero calories in a product like diet or vitamin or any of the other flavored waters with sweeteners out there. And I thought, here he is just saying the same stuff over and over again. He's probably teaching people inside of his organization the exact same thing. And yet he doesn't have the same consumer that I have. And after about half an hour to 45 minutes of hearing him basically share his strategy about, you know, who the next consumer was, that's when we hung up the phone and I thought, okay, I have a choice. He's not going to distribute my product. He isn't going to help me actually figure out how to do a preservative-free product because he didn't have any. And instead, I had a choice. Do I throw the pedal down hard and just keep going? Or do I quit? And I thought, I think in many ways, hearing him say the word sweetie, call me sweetie, kind of helped me in some ways to maybe sort of lose trust, if that makes sense, in, in what he was saying, yeah. kind of disconnect his qualifications in some bizarre way where I just thought, oh, you know, anyone who would call me sweetie, I mean, why should I listen to him, right? And instead, I just, I really viewed it as something that I had to maybe experience that I was, didn't love, but I was going to be able to live through it. And it taught me a lot, but it also made me go. I was the underdog who was, you know, had the vision and I wasn't going to stop. And that was the, that was the biggest lesson that I learned out of that experience. Yeah. I mean, how much would you say is your childhood that kind of gave you that kind of drive? I was reading a bit of your book, Undaunted, which was awesome. And you highlighted how I think you were the youngest of five and you kind of just had to do your own thing. Your dad said, okay, every time Kara hears a no, she thinks it's a maybe. And a maybe is always a yes. And to me, it's like you had this way of thinking and also what you grew up in that maybe, you know, you get into a situation like that and you're like, well, I'm not so sure I actually trust what you're saying. Like, do you even know this area? I'll move on. How much was because of that? Yeah, well, I think my house was at least for me, it was a negotiation. Everything was a negotiation. And it was about me being able to convince my parents that I should be able to do stuff. I mean, you have to understand too, when my parents had me, they were the oldest parents on the block. They were 40 years old when they had me, which, you know, nobody was having kids that was 40 at that time. And so 
it was, um, you know, I had four brothers and sisters, two wild, kind of wild brothers. And basically my parents said, no, that was like their first response. Can I go to the party on Friday? No. Can I do this? No. Can I do this? No. So then I'd have to figure out, okay, well, what if I go in that way? What if I talk to him about this or whatever it is? So I think that that was, you know, a lot of what I had experienced. And who would have thought that those would be life lessons, life skills that I'd be able to take into everything else that I thought about doing in life. And, you know, I think more than anything, something that my parents also used to say to me, besides you're always negotiating, it's they'd get mad at me sometimes saying you're always trying to turn maybe into yes. But, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And I think about that still to this day, and I encourage everybody to really think about that too, because the worst is usually not as bad as you're sort of making it out to be, and it generally doesn't go down that way. In fact, most of the time, it turns out much better than you expected, or it turns out totally different, and you were completely paranoid and afraid of something that actually never happened at all. And I think that that's something that no matter what industry you're in, no matter what role you're in, whether you're a CEO, a leader, a founder, a brand new on the block working, trying to start something, you know, whatever you're doing, I think what is the worst that can happen is rarely as bad as you think that it's going to be. Yeah. And your mind, I feel like solves things quickly. I've done this a couple of times, whether it was you know, when the company was having problems or when I was back working in, at Google or Fannie Mae and just mapping through of like, okay, if this happens and I won't have insurance for my twins, okay, and then I can do this and I'll maybe go back to Google. And like my mind started solving all the problems and it got to like, okay, worst case scenario, eh, not as bad as, you know, my mind maybe thought it was high level. Like once you start getting into the nitty gritty, you figure out like what could the alternatives be? And it's actually not as bad as you think. But you have to get down to that, like mapping every step of it to make it feel real and even envisioning what that feels like to then know, you know, okay, that's passed down. You don't need to worry about that. Yeah. I mean, the most dangerous aspect when you freak yourself out about something and you think, oh, I can't do that. And is that you stop, right? And you don't do anything at all. And instead you have to figure out, okay, well, while I'm thinking about that, maybe I go and do this. Maybe I take baby steps in that direction to try and see if it's even an opportunity or possibility or whatever it is. And and oftentimes even trying to figure out how to move forward actually alleviates, to your point, your concern. Maybe it's researching something. Maybe it's actually seeing what is the possibility or talking to other people who have been through that situation that will actually get you out of the gate. But figuring out how to move forward is the most important aspect. Yep, I agree. So I want to kind of back up a bit when thinking about approaching different industries, because to me, I think when you're in tech, you know, as an example, there's not really much of too many no's. Like people are willing to kind of step in and help. And there's, like you said, no one's going to come in and say, okay, that's just not possible. Outside of that, though, I actually feel like many industries are kind of like that. Like we've been doing it this certain way for this long. And you will have someone like you experienced just say, that's not how we do things. We know how it works. What would your advice be to entrepreneurs who are, you know, trying to get into these more archaic industries that have been doing things the way they have? Like, how should they approach that? Because, yeah, from my mindset, I go and I ask for help. I approach the people who are, you know, doing what I want to do. And that feels pretty normal. But I think maybe once you get into a different industry outside of tech, then maybe that's actually not the best way to do it. And you actually just want to stay 
startup mode, you know, tunnel vision and don't let others dissuade you. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's so many ways to actually feel like you're being mentored and get information, even if you're not actually physically meeting with people. I mean, today, you know, you can find out how to do most everything on the internet, right? And definitely there's there's lots of webinars. There's, I mean, if the pandemic brought nothing else besides this um, from it, that's good. It's like, there's so many people doing Zoom talks for, so it's a lot easier to be able to access a lot of this information. But I think that the competitive advantage in whatever industry you're in for an entrepreneur versus, you know, whether it's an industry or actually kind of a behemoth company inside of an industry too, is that as they get bigger, maybe they're a public company, which I think adds even more complexity to it too. When things are going well in large companies and public companies, then you continue to do what you do every single day. Because why rock the boat, right? You don't want to pop the bubble. I mean, you just continue doing. And when you are have an entrepreneurial idea to actually change an industry, it's not that you don't go and speak to people in that industry and try and learn from them in some way, but understand that they may not actually see your vision, right? As Steve Jobs used to say, I mean, you don't ask the consumer what they need, you tell them what they need. And it's the same thing when you're looking at industries. You want to go start a company, you're not going to go and ask permission from somebody that's in that industry, because of course, they're going to tell you that, you know, that's not necessary because they haven't seen that consumer. Instead, what you do is you go create, you figure out how to create something great that maybe it's not fully fleshed out, but it's actually good enough to take it to the market to learn from it. And then if it's really getting attention, then you got to figure out how do you throw the gas on it. And I think that that's the most important thing. But again, it's interesting that you bring that up because it's a little bit of imposter syndrome. And I think that this happens a lot for founders um, because you're, you know, starting a company, you've got this vision for what it's supposed to be, you know what problem you are solving, but you still have doubts about whether or not it's actually going to work, right? You may be telling everybody, oh, it's going to be the greatest thing, but you don't have customers yet, or you're significantly smaller than everybody else out in the industry. You're rolling up your sleeves, you're trying to get it out there, and you're looking at the Google offices with all the pretty stuff around and the, you know, hint in the micro kitchens. And you're like, oh, I'm just trying really hard. I mean, this is, you know, it's just everybody's got a little bit of that. But I think really understanding from other founders what it's like um, to grow. And I always think it's really helpful, too, in thinking about founder stories too, the different stages, because so often I've met people who have started companies and maybe they didn't think entrepreneurism was for them. I have a friend who actually worked at Deloitte for years and then left Deloitte and decided to go with the startup. And the startup actually didn't have a product. They were like pre-product. They wouldn't have a product for like a few years. And she said she really wasn't into being an entrepreneur. It just like wasn't for her. And when I heard about the fact that they didn't actually have a product, that it was like pre-product, it was in the pharmaceutical industry and they were waiting and waiting. I was like, 
Well, was it the fact that you didn't like the entrepreneur or like a pre-revenue, pre-product thing? Because that's a very different company than somebody who's starting out that is really trying to get revenue now, maybe somebody who's, you know, a $10 million company and trying to grow to a hundred million. I think all of those things are really, really important to know. Yep. I love that. I also think there's a piece to kind of holding on to that imposter syndrome, or at least questioning your ideas and thoughts. I was just listening to a really good interview with this guy, Graham Duncan. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's written some really good things around like how to hire teams and, you know, a lot of really good content. No. Oh, check him out. Graham Duncan. Yeah. He has this blog post. I think it's called, Who's That Human There? And it's very interesting when it comes to how to hire a team, how to actually ask good reference questions. And I mean, you'll be in an entire wormhole if you're trying to figure out hiring. I highly recommend that. But his point was that, you know, you want to see how hard and strong someone's holding on to an idea. And if they are, like, you should be questioning that. So for instance, people who are out or people in older industries who basically have said a message so many times that's like calcified and they just keep repeating it. And they hold on so strongly to that idea that like no one's allowed to question it even themselves. And so there's a piece to that imposter syndrome, like you're mentioning, that I actually think is really important where you're constantly questioning, you know, is this the right way to do it? Is there a better way? And having those, you know, strong opinions, weekly held kind of mentality that I think, you know, you should always hold on to. Yeah, definitely. I I think it's really interesting too to bring in, you know, not only people who sort of have a passion for I mean, let's say it's it's supply chain, right? You bring in somebody who's really has experience maybe or an interest in kind of taking on that role, but in addition at different stages, right? Because it's not just about a spec of, of finding that person who will like fill your slot, but somebody who can actually expand the team to go with these different stages as well. I mean, I, I know I've interviewed people in the past who have said, for example, that, you know, they really loved the early stages of the company, but when they had the experience of going from 10 million to 20 million, it was really tough. And here's why. Having somebody like that on your team, how you had to change some aspect of your team that you didn't know, for example, that kind of thinking, I think too, is is really how to build out the best teams. And I think a lot of people don't think about that when they're interviewing. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. Yeah, trying to think about how do I hire someone who's agile and yeah, can get through great times, hard times, startup times, and it can be flexible and grow into a role is a, uh, an interesting challenge when it comes to hiring for sure. So I'm a mom of three boys under four. And I know you're a mom. I think you have four. I have kids, four. Right? I started Hint when I had four under six. So. Okay. So. Yeah, I I saw that and I was like, ah, this is my woman. She understands a lot of the struggles right now that I'm going through with these children. But there's a really fun story you had around, uh, I think it was your plan C section with your last son, I think. 
And it was around that and Whole Foods. And I was hoping you could talk about that because I thought it was an epic story, especially for anyone who's like, I'm a mom. How can I do this? I'm like, go listen to Kara's story. It's pretty funny and great. So could you please? Sure. Absolutely. Well, it was, you know, in the when I decided to actually launch Hint and I had made the decision that the world needed a product like Hint, I wrote the business plan and then I just decided I'm going to get it on the product on the shelf prior to my son, Justin, being born because I knew how hard it was. I had three other babies. I knew that I would have, you know, a few weeks after I brought him home from the hospital where, you know, that he'd sleep a lot, but then he'd really need my attention. And I wanted to be around for that too. And so I thought if I can just get it on the shelf, then maybe I'll have a little bit more time. Again, I had no idea. I'd never, you know, started my own company. I'd worked for entrepreneurs, but I didn't really understand what I didn't know. And that's when kind of the first lesson in launching a physical product, really any product, I learned kind of the hard way, which is you're always going to have delays, right? There, It never will be on time. There will always be a little bit of a delay. And so we had um, our first shipment that actually came in my garage the day before I was launching my my fourth child i was having a planned c section i'll set this up for you here i here i am i'm living in san francisco i've got three kids we've got babysitter coverage right coming to watch the kids while we're going and having a planned c section my husband theo and i or it's like going to the ritz carlton basically because we're checking in you know to the hospital he's going to stay in the chair the fold out chair in my room it's going to be great. We get a little bit of a break. And that's when I woke up that morning on May 27, 2005. And my husband said, so what do you want to do this morning? We don't have to be at the hospital till one o'clock. And I said, let's go get our product in Whole Foods because that way we only have two spaces in our garage. And one of the spaces is being taken up with these pallets of water and how is the babysitter going to watch the kids in the house and like juggle cars on the street, that extra car. Like I was like, oh my God, this is going to be crazy. I'm like trying to figure out the logistics of all this. And so he looked at me and he said, so I didn't really think that you were going to say, let's go work on getting the product in Whole Foods this morning. I thought you were going to say brunch or maybe go on a walk or something like that. I'm like, no, I would feel so much better if I got the product in Whole Foods before I went and delivered Justin. And so Theo was nice enough to load up some cases in the car. I had talked to this gentleman at Whole Foods a few months before, but I really hadn't been in there. I didn't share this part with Theo, but I hadn't been in there lately because I was busy, right, doing other things. So I thought, there's a 50-50 shot whether or not I'm actually going to get the product in. Hopefully he wouldn't say maybe because I probably would have missed my window to have Justin if that would have happened trying to get him to yes. We got to Whole Foods and I recognized the gentleman who I had kind of had some banter with before about this idea and tapped him on the shoulder and he looked at me and I said, hi, do you remember me? And he said, you are really pregnant. And I said, yeah, I, I am. I'm, I'm super pregnant. He said, like, are you going to deliver a baby in, in the store? And I said, gosh, I hope not. I'm, 
actually scheduled to have a baby this afternoon. And he said, what do you mean? Like you're scheduled to have a baby. And I said, oh, I'm having a planned C-section. And he said, so what's the difference between a planned C-section and an emergency C-section? Because a friend of mine had an emergency C-section. And I, I said, like his detail orientedness, <laughs> right? And I, he's taking a break at this moment while he's not putting product on the shelf. And he wanted to be educated about, you know, C-sections. So my husband laughed and kind of left me standing there. He thought, oh my God, is she really going to take this guy through having a C-section? Why not? And so I explained where babies came from and how you have planned C-sections and answered all his questions. And after I was done, I said, by the way, I have my product hint here. I'm wondering if you could put the product on the shelf because I have to be at the hospital at one o'clock. And he said, I will try. It wasn't a maybe, but he said, I will try. And I thought, okay, he didn't commit, but it's kind of close, but he didn't quite commit. And my husband at that point said, come on, Kara, we have to go. We need to go to the hospital. And I said, okay. So I left not really knowing whether or not he was actually going to put it on the shelf. And I didn't learn until the next day after Justin was born. And I got a phone call. And the phone call was from him, from the guy that I was talking to at Whole Foods. And he said, your product is gone. And I said, who took it? I mean, I hadn't focused on actually replenishing the product. We had just dropped it off. And he said, uh, the product is all gone. The 10 cases that you guys dropped off are gone. Here I was thinking that maybe somebody took them, stole them. How could anybody buy the product? I mean, I was really just focused on getting it on the shelf. And he said, uh, no, I mean, you guys need to get back in here because I'm going to get in trouble if we, I mean, this is hot product, like people are buying it. And I thought most of my friends, you have to understand too, were in tech. All of my friends were in tech. I didn't even tell people that I was making a beverage at home. People would ask me, oh, what are you doing? Many people didn't even ask because they knew I didn't have a job. I wasn't getting paid. And so that was, you know, an interesting kind of moment because I thought here I've created a product where people are actually buying my product and they don't even know me. Like it was mind blowing to me that I had created something that people really wanted. And it was fascinating. We checked out of the hospital a day early and my husband like went and replenished the cases and everything was fine. But, you know, I, I remember thinking something really interesting. We put on the bottle that first run something that hadn't really been done. We put an email and a phone number on the bottle and the emails went directly to me. I didn't have a customer service team or anything. And so here I am sitting in bed recovering from having Justin. And I remember the note from this gentleman who had bought the product and he said, thank you so much for creating this product. I have something called type 2 diabetes. And I had never, this is 17 years ago, very small percentage of the population had type 2 diabetes. I'd heard of diabetes and type 1 diabetes, but never really had heard of type 2 diabetes until I received this email. He went on to share how he had struggled with trying to figure out how he got this. He wasn't born with this and he was healthy and active. And then suddenly he, you know, had 
gotten type 2 diabetes. And the more I heard from this consumer about his challenge and connected the fact that he was thanking me for creating a product that was helping him achieve something, do something, which was maintain his type 2 diabetes, I thought, that's pretty special, right? That's pretty awesome. And I thought, maybe this is hard. Maybe there's a lot of things to figure out. But I still think about that 16 and a half years later, how if you can actually build a product, if you can do something, whether it's a service or no matter what industry you're in or a physical product, if you can do something that helps somebody be better in some way and achieve something that they didn't know that they could do, that they had been having problems doing, that solves a problem, that's a powerful thing. I mean, that's a personally a very powerful feeling that you created something that is better, right? And that, and again, it it fascinates me that you can actually do that and be helpful to people without ever meeting them, without ever knowing them, just by creating something that just helps. Fast forward through today. I mean, I sadly, I'm like, we need another five hours to go through the entire journey. But if you fast forward to today, how would you start again? If you were to say, okay, I want to start something new, like the world is in such a different place now. And what would you do? Or what, where would you even start out? Because I feel like you've probably had so many experiences, so many lessons, so much advice from people probably, and you've probably given advice to a lot of people. But like, I want to kind of see how your brain works today. And like, how would you go about it? I think it would be really challenging for me not to do something that actually helped, right? And that that bettered the world in in some way. And uh, it wouldn't have to necessarily be in health, although that's a pretty powerful magnet, right? Something that people care so much about that stumps them. When you can actually do something like that, I think that that's success, right? That's an achievement. And I don't know. I mean, look, I started out in media, went on to tech, came into beverage, mission-based consumer products. Maybe it's something, all of those things, you know, but I think in the meantime, I'm very focused on making sure that Hint gets bigger, that it's... uh, you know, there's a lot of white space. Hint is only in the U.S. today. So international, the sky's the limits. And, you know, I think health is something that is really a puzzle for many people, right? I mean, we just are dealing with two years of a pandemic where it's it, it definitely is whether you believe in vaccines or masks or no matter where you're living in the world or gender or any socioeconomic background, any of those things, everybody wants to stay healthy. And I think people figuring out what you put into your body, what you do on a day-to-day basis might actually be more powerful and more helpful to you than actually trying to fix yourself when you have to. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay. I also, I was reading through your book, which is awesome. And I want to hear one of your favorite stories while writing it that, yeah, you love to talk about, or maybe that enough people don't talk about from the book. Or you're like, this is a really good one to reminisce about. I will tell you a story 
There were a few stories that were cut from the book. Oh, that's even better. Yeah, ones that were cut. This was one that was cut from the book. So I'm in the middle of a transition from my little startup that I was at when I was just had come to Silicon Valley called Two Market. And we were kind of moonlighting, helping our investor, America Online, uh, actually develop out their marketplace. And so- Small company. A no small deal. company. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. This is, you know, 1996. We were, they definitely weren't ahead. They had competition. They were kind of the underdog versus a couple of other companies, Prodigy and CompuServe, if you remember any of those nope. services <laughs> in the 90s. But, you know, underdogs can win. And definitely they were, America Online was one of our investors and that was kind of the connection. But as I started to help build out, you know, this this marketplace and I at Two Market, I had been responsible for bringing retailers in, including The Gap. And I have a story in, in the book about that. And also some like online only companies that were out there, some catalogs like Omaha Steaks and L.L. Bean, et cetera. But it was a lot of fun building those out. But the one gap that we had that, you know, America Online, we really felt needed was books. And we had talked to Barnes and Noble and this other brand called Borders Books that is no longer around, asked, you know, tried to get them to work with us so that we could offer our consumers the ability on America Online to be able to purchase books. And when we kept hearing no and we were waiting and we were really lacking this category, I had heard about this guy in Seattle. Jeff Bezos. And he was, you know, scrappy guy. It was a lot smaller. We thought maybe we could go do a deal with Amazon with Jeff Bezos. And that would get Borders and Barnes and Noble's attention to eventually come online with us. And so reached out to him, he reached back out. And, you know, this is when Amazon was just books, right? And so I'll never forget, he sends me an email back and he said, I can't meet before five o'clock. So if you can make it up to Seattle, I'll meet you at five o'clock and I'll meet you at my warehouse. So I get off the plane, go drive around. I'm looking for the number on the warehouse and it's 515 and I call him and he said, I can't meet with you now because it's it's past five o'clock. And I said, well, I can't find your number. And he said, there's no numbers on the warehouse. I thought, Okay, well, how am I going to find the warehouse if uh, there's no numbers, there's no address? So all of a sudden, I see this guy out in front of the warehouse, and he's waving his arms, Jeff Bezos, waving his arms like, oh, I'm over here. Okay, so I get over there. It's now like going on 530. And he said, I can't meet with you. And I said, oh, come on, I flew up here from San Francisco and meeting. And, you know, and he, he said, I've got to build bookshelves. And I said, I can help you build bookshelves. I am like, I am the best bookshelf builder there is. And he started laughing. And um, I had never built a bookshelf before, but I thought, how hard could it be? Why not? So here we are building bookshelves, me and Jeff Bezos. And I had another colleague with me. And I mean, I remember thinking, okay, this guy's the CEO of the company. I'm, and he's building bookshelves at 530. I'm not sure that they're going to be able to scale with us or do any. 
you know, grow with the company. I mean, he's kind of funny. He's sort of like a, an interesting meeting, to say the least. He doesn't have numbers on his building. Uh, all of these things were going through my head. And in order to size him up, I thought, okay, what is it that I need to hear from him that is really going to help me to make this decision, whether or not this is the right decision? And so I asked him, I said, so Jeff, why do you think you can compete against like the big guys, like Borders and Barnes and Noble? And he said, you read, right? I said, yes, Jeff, I read. And I read a lot. And he said, do you ever go to the bookstore and ask for a recommendation? This is 1996. And I said, I do. And he said, and how good are those recommendations in the store? And I said, well, you can't expect the person behind the counter to really know you and know what your likes and dislikes and interests are in every single category. And he said, the future of book sales, the future of all category sales online is recommendations. And I, and I remember thinking, wow, at that moment. And that was the thing that really, since I said, I remember calling my husband when I was coming back to get back on the plane. And I said, this guy's really smart. And I told him what he said. He was at a company called Netscape at the time, and they had just done a deal with Amazon as well. And, and I remember just thinking, I wasn't sure whether or not he was going to be able to scale or not, but he was really smart. And he was thinking about the consumer and the future. I also share that story because how long did recommendations take to actually get off the ground? And how many people had he said that to who doubted him and didn't believe? Barnes & Noble and Borders weren't doing recommendations. Like, he must have been the person that looked a little crazy, right? And, you know, where is he today? I mean, on his yacht and doing all kinds of stuff, right? Like, so I think that that's the thing that, you know, the, the visionary entrepreneurs, the people that are actually figuring out what can be done, they look a little crazy. But in addition to that, how long do things actually take? People get frustrated because they're like, oh, it's taking a long time. Recommendations, it took 20 years. Yep. And they're still getting better. And I bet Jeff Bezos didn't think it was going to take 20 years. Yeah. He wouldn't have started it. I think all founders always say, like, if they knew what it would actually take, they would have never started the company they started. And yeah, I mean, it reminds me of this quote. I actually just have it in my little notepad in the upper left-hand side that I've never brought up in an interview, but it's by this guy, George Bernard Shaw. I don't know if you've heard mm -hmm. this quote. It says... The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man or woman. I'm like, that is how I want to act every single day. And with that, Kara, thank you so much for hopping on here today. We will have to do more podcasts together because this was super fun. Until next time, where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? all over social media at Kara Golden with an I. And hopefully you'll get a chance to pick up the book as well. Lots of good stories in there, even if you're not a beverage entrepreneur or even if you're not an entrepreneur. I think it's a, it's a story of a journey, resistance, resilience. All of those things I think are, are really key. So hopefully you'll reach out and share what you think with me as well. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.